You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. From Vineyard Theater in New York City, this is Theater Uncorked. Where Vineyard artists come together to talk about the process of bringing new works to the stage. I'm your host, Eric Pargotch. For episode six, we are joined by Jordan Harrison, Pulitzer Prize finalist for Marjorie Prime, in conversation with Obie Award-winning director Oliver Butler. After the success of his science fiction chamber drama Marjorie Prime, Jordan wanted to dive into something totally different. That led him to the 14th century and the troupe of traveling actors trying to escape the Black Plague in The Amateurs, which received its world premiere at the Vineyard and was named a critic's pick by the New York Times, with Jesse Green calling the production a terrific, gutsy new comedy. A celebrated playwright, Jordan is the recipient of the Horton Foote Prize, Guggenheim and Hodder Fellowships, the Kesselring Prize, the Roe Green Award, the Heidemann Award, and an NEA TCG residency. He has written over a dozen plays, including Maple and Vine, Amazons and Their Men, Doris to Darlene, and the upcoming Log Cabin. He's also written for three seasons of the Netflix series Orange is the New Black and has developed television series for Sundance and TNT. At the helm of the amateurs is Oliver Butler. Oliver is a co-artistic director of the Debate Society, where his recent credits include The Light Years, Jacuzzi, and Blood Play. He also directed the Lortel and Obie Award winning The Open House and What the Constitution Means to Me. Regionally, he's directed at the Geffen Playhouse, Williamstown Theatre Festival, and Hartford Stage, and internationally at the Malt House in Australia. He is a Sundance Institute Fellow and a Bill Fowler Fellow. Both Oliver and Jordan made their Vineyard stage debuts with the amateurs. We are excited the two could join us before the opening night of the play. And now, this is Jordan Harrison and Oliver Butler in Theater Uncorked at the Vineyard. I think we started out as as mutual fans. I shouldn't speak for Oliver, but I'll just say I started out as a fan of the Debate Society. And um, I I think I saw Cape Disappointment first and published the script uh, in a a journal of plays that I was co-editing at the time. And I just, uh, I was really taken by... Uh, there were a lot of similarities with the things that I'm trying to accomplish. Like they, they tend to have sets that make uh, sudden and, 
and aggressive gestures. They uh, There's a kind of sense in the Debate Society's work of traps kind of closing slowly around the audience. Um, the revelation in, in Jacuzzi that these two affable backpackers are uh, up to no good. You know, there, there was a, a kind of quality of being like one step ahead of the audience that is a, a thing I find pleasurable. Um, and and that's that's how I first noticed Oliver Butler. I think I first met Jordan possibly through my girlfriend, Cynthia Flowers, uh, who was introduced to me by Michael Cyril Creighton, who's in our production of The Amateurs. Um, and Cynthia, because she had worked at Playwrights Horizons, um, had become familiar with Jordan's work. And uh, I knew who Jordan was, and I had seen his plays. Um, I'd read Doris to Darlene, and I'd read, uh, I saw, of course, Maple and Vine. I've been a fan of his for years. Um, and I think the thing that, um, so we were in the same community, and we became friends maybe at the same time that we were sort of getting to know each other's work. And um, I'm someone, I'm a director who grew up backstage because my mother's an actor. And so I've always had a taste for plays that sort of deal in multiple layers of reality and consciousness. And I feel like Jordan has this like really incredible way of creating very playful worlds that are also sort of uh, dramaturgically rigorous and um, very surprising. There's always sort of like multiple layers of story happening simultaneously, um, which makes them both sort of very fun and dramaturgically um, dense and beautiful. We sort of became friends like at the same time as we became collaborators, but this is the first time we've gotten to do like a full-blown rehearsal experience. Yeah. We were kind of workshopping this up and down the country for four years, I would say. Yeah. It's been a long gestation period. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, yeah, the trip out, God, that was four years ago. We went out to uh, South Coast Rep, right? Mm -hmm. And we did a week-long workshop out there. Yeah. And uh, that was, I mean, that was, uh, that was a really fun time. It was great to sort of jump all the way into this piece and to spend an entire week working on it with Heidi Schreck, yeah. who um, um, was in a few of the workshops of the play as well. Yeah. We'll, we'll do we, a whole little section on yeah, Heidi. I can see your eyes like wondering, are we gonna like <laughs> pull the curtain aside and <laughs> yeah. reveal the secrets? Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's funny because I really envisioned it. I set out to make it on purpose a kind of unwieldy epic three act you know experience and i think originally i imagined a couple intermissions that would be like grueling to go through physically like Ariane nushkin mm. and um and now we have this like boiled down hour and 26 minutes of theater you know that still is somehow i think epic yeah that's why no it yeah it, yeah, it, it pa i am amazed every time i watch it and the fact that it is 126 minutes just baffles the mind for me right it, um, you go through so much you yeah. go through so much there's there really is a lot of play and a lot of world and a lot of character in a very short amount of time a thing that that oliver brought to it that all that i love that i'll highlight is that so much of it is actor operated you have this kind of traveling pageant wagon of wonders that is the only source of um color and and um fantasy in this kind of burned out world and so much of the things so many of the things that it does are controlled by our actual troupe of actors so in a way you're seeing them become there's this trompe l'oeil effect of them becoming an actual team of traveling players yeah that was definitely something i mean we talked about that early on and it was something that was very clear to me very early on was that the actors needed to be the ones sort of operating the theater machinery um i do have to say i already 
I said this already, my mother being an actor, I feel like I sometimes, I know some directors are really good at sort of um, exacting pain on their casts and sort of, a lot, you know, maybe not caring as much about sort of what they've got to go through. It became, you know, asking some of the greatest uh, theater actors in our community to also do all of the theater machinery in the play. <laughs> we They were very game through you know, through the process, but there were, you know, there are times at which when you're asking these people to sort of carry, actually drag the set around the stage back and forth and what can be, you know, could be dangerous if not handled well, um, was something that uh, it was great to have Jordan's support in doing that because the two of us sitting there asking them to sort of do all that work makes it a lot easier and more fun. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly a, there are rehearsal processes where asking an actor to, to strike their own hat is, is a it, you know is in danger of overstepping. Like just each process yeah. has its own boundaries, and um, they did escape some heavy lifting. I think originally we had imagined they would all like become experts on medieval instruments, and like yeah. it didn't become like a thing yeah. that there was you know really much real estate in the play for. But. That's right. And to their credit, they never actually said no to any of the big ideas. But yeah, when the 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 ideas that were either untenable or unnecessary just sort of became revealed to us we were allowed to you know pull them back without um um without any resistance from them i love the the thought that you're because your mom was a noted theater actor that's the sort of conscience sitting on your shoulder of like don't you know what would an actor i think about this i think about it a lot actually because i fancy myself as someone who understands the actor's world but also wonders if i'm a little bit um, you know, in some ways gun shy about sort of pushing people in ways that make them uncomfortable in certain ways. So mm-hmm. I, it's just how I frame myself. I'm sure I, I have no idea how I'm actually perceived in that. I might be one of the monsters, but <laughs> I, I, I think I'm always like, you know, too heavily invested in other people's feelings in the process. Better than being <laughs> I guess so. emotionally dead, I suppose. I guess I can, so. it's, we should probably have mentioned that this is like opening night day. I could just hear it yeah. in our voices. We're still like in the middle of it. How oh do I analyze God. this thing? That I know. Like, I know. Whitewater raft we're still on. I yeah. know. I know. It's uh. Yeah, opening. Yeah, opening is so weird. What a! It's like, I for a director. I mean, I wonder if this is similar for you, but you know, you're the most important person in the room for like six weeks, and then almost instantly you become sort of useless. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I go through. I think all directors go through some version of this, but you go through like this period of mourning separation anxiety right yeah it's like go off to college kids yeah and you really i mean you know you go backstage or you give notes and you see the actors and they you know they receive the notes and they're happy to see you but it is um you do feel profoundly uh useless you're not useless but um it's a feeling that's sort of unlike anything else what is it like for you when your play after your play opens do you feel um like your role shifts at all? Do you go through mourning after the process or is, is I, it when the play closes after the play opens? And it's not always by design. Like often I have somewhere I have to go back to, but it's like, I, I, I like giving it away after opening. I don't, I don't feel anxious about that. Probably for me, the angst is 
the trickiest part is transitioning to tech because that is when I should mm. not have a voice for a little while. That's when yeah. the director is doing sort of their first draft. And, mm. um, and this process was unusual and that like the beginning of tech was one of the few times I could be there when we were in the theater and, and yeah. Oliver was generous about like, uh, accepting the way that that sort of accelerated some of the decisions, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm coming from a place where with the debate society, Hannah and Paul are not only on stage, but I mean, they're, they are heavily involved in the conversation around tech mm -hmm. as well. So, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's funny as a director, you, you don't actually see any other directors processes, you know, you get to work with so many other directors you see how the different styles of people manifest so for me like i have no idea what i'm looking at ann kaufman's name behind you and there's somewhere fun poster <laughs> hovering over my yeah shoulder. <laughs> yeah um, but like you work with other you know some of the most amazing directors in the field um and it just uh it occurs to me that like our process while it may have seemed different for we were forced because i had you for two days in tech so mm -hmm. we had to sort of really make sure that we had the right vocabulary for the piece um that was sort of a normal process for me because usually i have hannah and paul from the stage talking to me about ideas that yeah. we have and working things through you're a good director for a hands-on playwright because they're you're used to them being collaborators in that yeah. way i i, I want to highlight the first day of tech was the first day that the actors had to move this like monster cart um through like a field of you know rubber mulch which can't make it easier um and there was like it was just you know at first unwieldy and hard to make it turn so that it landed in exactly the right spot for the lighting and there was a moment where oliver went up up on stage and moved this whole thing that usually four people move by himself like he was this like ox and it was like just a, a kind of uh, on the subtext of it was that it was a demonstration for the cast that it wasn't going to be unworkable That's and right. i just remember holding my breath because the stakes of it were like what if he can't move this thing then you know are we all gonna mutiny or you know that's right flee to la or what are we gonna it do it felt yeah. nice when i got off the stage that jordan seemed fully aware of what the sort of the <laughs> metaphorical uh layers were to me going up there and doing that because that is exactly what it felt like which Thank yeah. goodness for CrossFit, right? Yes, all those, that's flipping right. all those tires made me be able to do that. You know? That's right. That's um, right. Annie Kaufman, because you brought her up, like she says that all playwrights ask what are what other playwrights are like. All we want to know is that the other people are like more neurotic than we are, and uh -huh. the truth, of course, is that we're all neurotic in our own yeah. our own way. But I actually, yeah. I got, I was on the phone with you. I was talking to Lauren, my assistant, about this, but I was on the phone with you during early previews that right after you left possibly i forget anyway mm -hmm. you were you i was on the phone with you and then i got a another call from uh willino uh and then i at the same time a text from heidi shrek <laughs> <laughs> so was, i i showed lauren the the phone and i said this is uh what a director's life is right. like it's a harem of need <laughs> <laughs> yeah. sort of managing yeah three layers deep um, because yeah. we're on the debate society a little bit. Um, I, I guess how is it different to work with a, a playwright? Like how is it different to work with me or Will, you know, or Heidi after uh, so many experiences? Yeah, with Paul and Hannah as co-authors. I'd say the biggest thing. I mean, everyone's got their own special, you know, sort of approach to playmaking. Um, and generally, if you're working with me you probably have some sort of an interest in some sort of conversation about 
the development of the piece um, because I tend to, you know, in working with Hannah and Paul, I'm there from the very beginning. So like my voice is already a part of the sort of the writing of the piece. Mm-hmm. I would say the biggest thing is, and this, I don't, um, this is not a bad thing for me. I sort of, I like this difference, but when you're working with a playwright, any of the playwrights I work with, they have already lived with the piece. Even though I started with this four years ago, you had already lived with it for at least a little bit of time. So you're sort of stepping into someone else's world. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is sort of a layer of suggestion or there's a level of suggestion that I don't give, or at least not for a while. Um, because I'm still trying to sort of navigate what this sort of foreign world is. Whereas with Hannah and Paul, I'm like, I just say a lot more bad ideas um, because I know that, you know, they're able to be like, no, no, that's not right. Or maybe that's not right. It's just, it's a little bit more fluid. Right. That's really the biggest difference, I think. Um, Because, yeah, I mean, every playwright is, is completely, completely different, you know, in what their world is and what their process is. Right. But I'm the least neurotic. You're the least neurotic. You are the least neurotic. <laughs> I think since I turned 35, it, like every play I've written has been <laughs> about death in some sense. And probably yeah. this weirdly is like has a slightly more kind of jocular take on it, given, mm-hmm. you know, even though it's about the black death. Um I uh, I guess the starting point for me wasn't even so much, wasn't something as large as as mortality it was this like finding hints of humanity before we were uh, before people were quite as fully dimensional and bef- before the self was quite as large a construction as it is now like looking at a 14th or 15th century painting and and finding the person in it who's a self-portrait of the painter uh in the case of the play it was this character of Noah's wife in the morality play, Noah's Flood, who was just filled with more um, unknowable motives. Uh, uh, the idea that, like, she's not, it's not logical for her to resist getting on the ark that will save her life, which God has told her to get on. So, why does she do that? Uh, there, uh, The writer Stephen Greenblatt writes that. Um, Shakespeare's main innovation was to add unknowable motives to these old stories. Like Romeo and Juliet was a, was an old yarn by the time he had Shakespeare adapted it. But what he did was to make people uh, not entirely knowable and lit with mathematical, uh, mathematically balanced motives. So, oh, way I'm way way out in the weeds now. No, like, I yeah. no, I I'm I'm just thinking about. Did you say unknowable motives? Right. I, Why does Iago ruin everything? Yeah, no, I, I yeah. just love that as an idea of maybe that's sort of, I, I'm sure, uh, yeah, Greenblatt must have just said that, but it's um, that seems like sort of a uh, an epiphany for me, the idea of something that's like a hallmark of sort of a modern character is um, the idea that things happen that we can't explain, which seems yeah. so obvious. Well, a, pro- I, a popular thing for a dramaturg or maybe an actor to ask is like, why would I do this? It's not consistent. Yeah. <laughs> and so the thought of consistency, inconsistency being yeah. part of the spark of, of a human soul is, is interesting. Yeah. How This is going to seem like a, a, a weird turn. How often do you think of death? Oh, um, 
not just your death or just think yeah, about like I, I mean I very I very rarely truly understand that I'm going to die someday, but um but I think every day all the time about the sort of passage of time and the way it feels like it's accelerating. Mm-hmm. And I do the 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 math of oh gosh, I, I lasted on this block when I was twenty two. That feels like yesterday, you know. And that's yeah. a kind of thinking about death, but it's not it's yeah. not the same as, you know, will I get a burial plot? Will I Right, <laughs> it's right. Not the nitty gritty yeah. perhaps. Yeah. I mean I th- I think about death every single day mm-hmm. a lot. It feels like almost all the time. Like every Everything I look at and everything I do is in relation to like the last time I did that thing. And then every time someone passes, all I do is like the math between how old I am now and like how old they were as if that matters. Um, but I um, I think about death a lot and what you said about the fact that all your plays since 35 have been about somehow related to mortality. That wasn't what you said, but related to mortality. Mm-hmm. Is that what you meant? Yeah. Yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> um, but they... Um, I also, the debate society is heavily involved in doing plays about aging and death. And uh, most of the plays I've worked on have in some way, either because I see them through a lens of death and dying or mortality, or because that's just what they're about, um, have uh, have focused on that. And um, I, uh, I think part of it, you know, has to do with also like for some of us, when you get to your sort of mid to late 30s, I turn 40 next week. People who week. are, you know, 60 are going to laugh at us talking about yeah. this. I'll just but shout it, out to them. But, <laughs> in the, but because our parents are those, are that right, age, right. you know, and my parents are both going through different, you know, versions of aging. Um, I think about, I mean, just what you said, my mother has, uh, has Alzheimer's and you know that, and she... Um, Watching what happens to her sense of watching what happened to her sense of self as things were removed from her consciousness, um, you know, things like numbers. Once numbers are gone, what happens to your sense of time? Mm-hmm. Um, what happens when your sense of time is gone and how that affects like your idea of what a day is? Right. Um, and all of that kind of stuff has been just sort of going on very practically in my life as I watch someone sort of become less of themselves. Mm-hmm. So looking at this play, what I personally really found very sort of exciting and interesting on a very personal level was watching this idea of the evolution of the eye right. being something that not just evolves for a, per, a single person as they become who they are, but that like through time, our sense of I has somehow changed. And that actually that made me feel very hopeful in reading the play and working on the play because it gives me some idea that like... You know, what I think of as myself now actually has some evolution to go, mm-hmm. that there is some new sense of self that right. might be possible in the future. And I believe that we'll get true. better at being human. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and that feels that feels so exciting to me, especially because I've watched it in reverse. I feel absolutely true that or absolutely confident that um You know, that by at, you know, if you can take away practical things from consciousness Mm -hmm. and diminish a person's humanness, well, then all you have to do is sort of like add things to consciousness that are helpful and you will invariably increase their humanness. Yeah. I I mean, as much as we're talking about death, it feels like the business of rehearsal was almost more to do with like giving those players the will to live you know like the given circumstance of the the prologue is that one of their own 
just got taken by the bubonic plague. And so like so much of the work we were doing was finding, you know, the the will to outrun it and pick up the wagon. And why would you put on this performance for the Duke? You know, eh, that that partly that's because that's the way that they end up broadening uh their idea of the self it's like it's the effort to wake up every day on the cold ground and still go about the business of living that's right that's right yeah i i'm not someone whose plays change a ton in development and this one changed more than most of them Mm -hmm. yeah the i would say the great evolution of it since that first workshop four years ago uh, was was the character of Hollis and why she goes off script in the performance for the Duke late in the play. Mm. Like, I, I just... I feel like the draft we were opening with at the Vineyard is much more clear about how she gets there. Um, and it's not a direct road, but you see this person who's discontent with this play that requires nothing of her and she starts to wonder what would happen if she didn't just say the lines is written mm-hmm. she goes through watching one of the other players suffer, suffer a stillbirth there there's uh she gets to the point where she has nothing left to lose uh so why not bring all of herself Mm. Uh, into the play onto the stage mm-hmm. um, and of course part of that journey is is uh, the wonderful monologue written by Heidi Schreck uh, that I should give a nod to that I think now that people are listening to this after the play opens we can mm-hmm. maybe reveal that surprise so um, Heidi uh, developed uh, the role of Hollis with us in a few workshops um, and then I asked her there's this giant monologue by someone saying that they're Jordan Harrison, someone playing the playwright. Um, And it started to feel like what was missing in the monologue was the actor's perspective. So I commissioned Heidi, who is, uh, you know, as an as illustrious a writer as she is an actor, I, I um, commissioned her with three hundred dollars and a winter hat to, to write about her um, experience. Uh, and and now we're re- renegotiating the terms of that commission. It's about time. <laughs> you know? um, but so she responded with a monologue about playing Mrs. Cratchit uh, in a Christmas Carol at Actors Theatre of Louisville earlier in her career. Um, and the it felt like the right decision was. Uh, to let Quincy deliver that experience as though it was her own. And I imagine that's what we'll do in subsequent productions, that the role will be named after whoever is playing it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then uh, here at the Vineyard, and I should let Oliver chime in, um, a lot of the changes have been pragmatic and practical but they they impact the 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 way the play flows in an important way we cut the intermission Mm -hmm. um maybe five previews in um so you're just like you know it's just like a train that doesn't stop um and we changed the ending, which we should talk about because that's exciting times. Yeah. Like, I have actually not seen the, the latest oh version of the ending yet no, here I, on opening night day. I yeah. will say I do have a, a certain amount of stress because Jordan, we had like a really wonderful uh, a wonderful um, preview right before Jordan left about a week and a half ago. Um, and then we've had rehearsals and we've had to do work remotely, you know, on like... Right. Um, the end of the play. Yeah, I have like a little bit of thing- stress around Jordan coming and seeing <laughs> what is a basic, you know, it's all there, but like edits that he hasn't actually seen in person right? for the, the- first time. the thing is alive you know so it's like we have a good preview and i get on a plane and like it doesn't just kind of stay stay there you know there were things that the show continued to need after i left so we had a couple real 
uh, detailed come to Jesus conversations and and I sort of uh, made some of the language in the final scene more accessible and then we altered the very final final moment in a way mm-hmm. that I'm I'm pretty excited about even not having seen it, you know. Yeah, no, um, I'm, I, and, I feel very, you know. I feel, I feel very confident about about yeah. that, and um, it, um, yeah, the process. I would say, just while we're comparing you to every uh, to all the other writers in the world as well uh, in process, Jordan, I think falls. You know, there are writers who change nothing, and then there are writers who sort of change seemingly everything i've sort of been a part of both of those processes, and jordan falls pretty much in the middle Mm -hmm. of that and i think that's a pretty healthy place to be um because there's like so many forces like pulling at a play um and it's actually helpful to have a pretty solid anchor you know of you know so that you're not changing everything while you're working on something so you're forced to interpret what's actually there as best as you can um and uh you know, Jordan was was really good about making changes when changes needed to happen and also sort of holding fast to what was there to help us fully understand what it was meant to be. Um, Sometimes you have to ask me three times, then I know it's no, like, okay, true. this is unignorable. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's right. That's right. And uh, the, yeah, the intermission, I mean, that's a, that's a big thing because I actually, I, I was pretty solid on the side of this play really was built with an intermission, which it was. Um. And uh, when we first tried it, it was really like, okay, we'll try this, but we're ready to go back to the other thing. Right. And um, it really just felt, yeah, that was a that was a big change. It felt very right. There's a few parts of having it that I think like there is an experience to having an intermission in the play that there are positive elements to that. I hundred percent believe this is the right choice. Um, but it was a that was an exciting thing to implement. Yeah, it's like you you say it was written for an intermission, but I would say like even more accurately, I had in mind two intermissions, and then right. it's just the third act was never quite long enough to justify that. Yeah. Um. So in a way, no intermission mimics the structure of two intermissions a little better. Like yeah. you were always supposed to experience the, I guess I would call it the contemporary act, the confessional act. Um was always supposed to be a kind of parenthesis mm. in between the two medieval acts. Mm. And when we cut the intermission, it actually, I think, helps it be right. legible in that way. So Agreed. that's Agreed. right. Yeah. It's not just a, not just because we want to get people home, you know, in the nick of time. It's, um, yeah. <laughs> it's for art. And of course, we got to discover this great um, sort of magic trick of Michael's costume transformation. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. was very it's rewarding. Really fun. I, I look forward to it every time I watch it. And then, yeah, and then the dirt, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like in our first meeting with David Zinn, he was like, we were just throwing around ideas. He's like, or, you know, we just like cover the whole stage in dirt. And, you know, it's like he showed us these photos. Right. It was sort of a throwaway idea almost, although maybe not for him. Maybe he like knew he was planting this genius thing in our heads. (laughs) I I have a feeling he probably knows like the best way to get traction on an idea is to like just float it but uh yeah he showed us these photos and you know i mean we were still in the um it was just photos of some sort of art piece that was like rooms full of dirt um and um we were still at the place trying to understand sort of whether to just broad strokes should the play's world exist in a you know a bright place or a dark place Mm -hmm. like you're just as you're sort of trying to figure out what a production is for me I sort of go back and forth between sort of extremes and whittle my way down to something White box very specific. Or black box. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you even I, 
weirdly this relates to you talked to me about characters having open eyes versus closed eyes right. big eyes and small eyes. big eyes and small eyes like credo yeah but i i do actually enjoy sort of like broad initial choices the idea of whittling things down is like a way that a pro i've just often thought of my work which is why it's like you have a lot of bad ideas until they're slowly become better and better and better. right so i think the dirt really was like you know zinn recommended you know he was like a big pile of dirt and i don't even know if we jumped on it immediately but we started to then lean into the idea of a world of darkness that was then punctuated by um a you know a box of color like the, right. the theater and the people end up being this sort of colorful palette that is exploding out of a world of darkness yes. yeah. we just sort of like kept pushing at the idea and trying to take it further and further and the dirt just sort of um started to seem exciting we always liked the idea of them coming out of the darkness like can you even see the back wall and that's the way the physic is first revealed just kind of like yeah. the rods and cones in your eyes can just barely make him out and then he's there and the the field of dirt like uh really helps they almost look like chess pieces up there it's like yeah. the first way i heard it described like yeah. it really makes each individual person pop um yeah and i i a thing that i'm grateful for about it is just the sheer simplicity of it because the play has a lot of complicated demands like a real dove a fake dove um blood yeah. a fire um and so to have something that isn't moving you know i yeah. mean w there's a certain amount of maintenance we learned even with a pile of dirt so that creepy crawlies don't start growing in it and yeah. so forth but um it is at least is an unmoving piece <laughs> of, right. of the puzzle. A thing that's always been special to me about working with David Zinn on this is that uh, we, for like, you know, my entire 15 year theater career, I never even met him, but he comes from the same small island in Puget Sound as, as I do. Um, and we were both in the grease paint repertory company, like not at the same time, but I grew up hearing about um, David Zinn being this like the one out, out gay guy at the high school. And that was like, you know 91 I was hearing about that so the 80s this was and mm. that was um uh whether I knew it or not at the time like uh, mm. a kind of inspiration he yeah was one of the first gay people I knew about and he had already made good designing things off Broadway so yeah. it was in the monologue in act two the playwright is talking about the, the kind of like little breadcrumbs that led him to an adult self-actualized gay life and and David Zinn was one of those breadcrumbs for me so it's it's a pretty cool thing for him to work on this yeah yeah I, I you I feel like you must have told me about your connection to David but I remember that I was interviewing him for the job and he told me and I was sort of blown away so he either you told me teacher. and I like yeah. forgot it but when he told me that it sort of felt like one of those sort of like because um, I've tried to work with David for years on projects and it just for schedule reasons that had never worked out. So the fact that we had this sort of overlap where he had actually gone to the same school as Jordan, that's it was just one of those sort of like cosmically connected experiences that I felt where I was like, oh, this is cl clearly the person who should be working on this play. Um, he also gave a lot of recommendations over the course of the process. Um, that were helpful, like even staging ideas and things that he sort of recommended over the process. So he's pretty good at seeding ideas in your mind and then making you think that they are your own. Um, I will say, just back to Pile of Dirt, I got to say, like the vineyard, <laughs> the vineyard sort of stuck with it. And actually, I credit Jordan and the vineyard 
together for getting it to what it is right now because uh, we initially wanted like real dirt, but real dirt comes with a whole bunch of complications, including like that the act, you know, you're also balancing like what will the actors put up with for an entire run of a play. The front row of the audience for that matter. Exactly. Like, breathing a bunch of yeah, it could be a to- mites. It yeah. could be a total, you know, total mess. And they initially showed us, they just showed us all these different sort of rubber, you know, uh, rubber dirt products and the first one they showed us like really wasn't going to look like dirt and I think I was more I was more just like I think we can like we will imagine this to work and Jordan was one who was like this does not look right you know it's like it's <laughs> crushed tires or something and then of course somehow they like found these like three other products that were much more dirt like yeah. that we ended up using um and then had to check to make sure they weren't carcinogenic. And like <laughs> the Venn diagram that comes up with the thing we have on stage, it might be the only thing in the world that would work for us, like a black dirt-like substance right. uh, that is not carcinogenic. Um, I just didn't want it to look like a playground. Yeah. You know, and they accomplished that. Yeah. yeah. No, it really, it, I probably would have relented much earlier. And Jordan was <laughs> the one who was like, we got to keep pushing on this. And it, it came through. I have to say, we also, in, in the cor- over the course of the process, um, I usually spend a lot more time on the stage showing people how to do stuff. I mean, I got up there to move the cart, but there was towards the end of the tech, I, I think Jordan and I were like, you know, I've spent we haven't gone up there because you got to put booties on. And I think it had actually created a little bit of fissure between us and the cast. Like the cast was sort of relegated to the stage and we were more relegated to the house, which is always the case. But Jordan but, was like, yeah. I think I'm going to go like lie down up there on a break a little bit, you know, just sort of break the barrier a little bit because you could sort of feel the sort of the and it tribes forming, right? you know? It wasn't just for them. It wasn't just PR. It was also for me. I just felt like lonely and separate. I missed yeah. them, you know? So That's I right. like put on my little booties and like lay down on the pile of yeah. dismal rubber with the cast and it instantly yeah. felt connected to them again. That yeah. is also, when I think of like, if I could go back in time and actually have some forethought on it, that's one of those like brilliant directing moves where like if you're trying to create a sense of isolation or a sense of disconnect or even create a little bit of maybe even hatred for the machine, uh-huh. the people in the dark telling you what to do, it's like you create a structural barrier like that. <laughs> Is that ever productive? Do you ever want to create a sense I, of isolation? Well, I imagine, see, I also, just like I'm always imagining these other directors and how they work, mm-hmm. I imagine there are uh, the, the other better directors than me, like don't care about anybody's feelings, do these like amazing auteur things, <laughs> even though they ruin people's lives, and also secretly manipulate these like structural things that like no one would know they were doing that inadvertently infuse the play with something sort of hard to right. you know th- this is I just like, like my... being a, a dick is out of fashion i feel like maybe like yeah. a director 40 years ago like there was a mystique about it yeah. and i don't probably well, i feel like all our some... teachers and i it was like my teachers and like my parents would like they and my mother growing up in that time mm-hmm. they sort of worked in the theater and i think in a much more combative time that like i don't think was good but like yeah the way you heard great work was made was by somehow sort of like abusing each other in like sort of really sort of outrageous ways and then you made it through the fire but that does i i've never been like that but i think i have some hangover from that propaganda Uh that somehow like the greats 
you know, the strategically great. lifted up one actor and lowered another because right. they suited the status or something. Yeah, yeah. which I just I think it's a hangover. From, I think it was propaganda that was like sort of infused in the you know from our previous generation that has never really felt right. But yeah, yeah I still can't help but just believe they're yeah all the better people than me are, are doing that. <laughs> Or waging emotional warfare. That's yeah. funny. I like. I just think of like the safer the better. You know. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. hard enough as it is. Yeah. yeah. Well. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I've been struck by like I don't want to like imagine what makes theaters not do plays, but there were a, a number of theaters that were pretty interested in the amateurs, and then I felt them being circumspect about the sheer scale of it. Um, and I've just never felt like the Vineyard ever seemed deterred by that like I, I don't even really remember hearing no as far as like a, you know on the production scale like we That's right. got our real doves we <laughs> yeah we got our snow we got our fire um it, that there's a kind of uh, scrappy fearlessness about this production team at the vineyard and 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 sarah and doug as well um that in a way it was the perfect place to put on like what would otherwise be like a, a, a scary and unwieldy thing. Um, it's also special to me that it's uh, Paul Vogel was my mentor at Brown. And, um, and so it's been special to me to be at her home theater for sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They've been, uh, they've been a really great partner through all of this. I mean, when we, before we were actually in the building or rehearsing, um, you know, they, you always feel sort of a sense of distance from a company that you're working with. It's more of like a theoretical construct, like, oh, you're doing a play there. But, you know, we're not going to like an office in the vineyard and doing that. We're meeting people off site and preparing this mm -hmm. thing. It's all very theoretical and distant. Once we were actually rehearsing, um, it was an immense amount of sort of handling and response. There's like, a, there is. They an, get very hands on. They yes. get very hands on. There's like a, a real team there supporting stuff. I mean, the whole dirt conversation. Um, they really entertained. Uh, I have, I have had other, you know, very complicated uh, production processes where uh, the theater or the people working at the theater give up much sooner. And um, no one gave up on us uh, oh, no. throughout the entire process and ne and never actually made us feel um, embarrassed or bad for asking for something huge. Um, yeah, so it was a really well-supported well process. Yeah. I would say also even... Um here's my little apologia to Sarah. <laughs> like even after we like sort of solved the ending and, and the clouds came, clouds went away and the sun came out. Like she still the next morning had like three specific line notes for me. You know, she didn't kind of wipe her hands and say, well, we figured out the ending and all's good. Yeah. Like there was still like more that she wanted. To, she wanted to take it even further. Um, That's right. That's and that right. was, that was a great kind of relentlessness in a producer. That's right. Well, that's it for Theater Uncorked at the Vineyard. Thanks to Jordan Harrison and Oliver Butler for joining us on the podcast. Theater Uncorked is produced and edited by me, Eric Pargotch, Vineyard Theater's Director of Communications and New Media, with help from the Vineyard's Associate Producer, Ali Sky Bennett, and Marketing Director, Melissa Pelkey. Thanks to the Vineyard's Artistic Directors, Douglas Abel and Sarah Stern, and our Managing Director, Suzanne Appel, along with the entire Vineyard staff. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and rate and review us on iTunes. It helps spread the word. And last but not least, thanks to you for listening to Theater Uncorked at the Vineyard.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.